Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We're glad to be back with you after some time away. Coming up on today's program, a conversation with Dr. David Ross, retiring president and CEO of the Atlanta Task Force for Global Health. So much to talk about regarding his decades of work in public health domestically and globally, and as this nation is approaching 1 million COVID-19 deaths. Also, Closer Look's annual college graduates profile. Today, I'll speak with Anna Voss, a neuroscience and behavioral biology major and one of five Emory graduates to win the National Science Foundation Graduate Fellowship. Those conversations coming up, but for First, this through a series of tweets, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, in referring to the mass shooting in Buffalo, cited, quote, we pray that God eradicates any and all hate from the hearts of our neighbors. Hate has no place in America or in our great state, close quote. Other elected officials also offered comment. Senator Raphael Warnock tweeting, quote, this is devastating. My heart is broken for the loved ones of the 10 souls who were taken and for the people who were injured in this despicable evil act of violence, close quote. Now, in other news, the opportunity to vote early before this month's primary elections continues to bring folks out. According to the Georgia Secretary of State's office, Georgia voters are turning out in record numbers. In a release, the office cited as of Thursday, May 12th, just over 330,000 folks have voted early in Georgia. Now they say this is a 260 percent increase from the same point in the early voting period during the 2018 primary election and a 189 percent increase in the same point in the early voting period in the 2020 primary election. Speaking of elections, over in Gwinnett County, there's a race that's become one of the most competitive Democratic primaries in Georgia for right now. Three women are competing to be the nominee in the 7th Congressional District. State Representative Donna McLeod, McLeod excuse me, and two incumbents, Lucy McBath and Carolyn Bardot, as we hear from WABE's politics reporter, Sam Greenglass. The signing table at this month's meeting of the Gwinnett County Democrats is covered in literature. There's sheets listing early voting locations, stacks of colorful campaign flyers, and maps of the new congressional districts. This is the first election since redistricting, and these maps have left Democrats like Catherine Valle facing a difficult choice. We're talking about three strong, intelligent, powerful ladies. Um, So I really haven't made a decision, but I'm leaning toward um, McBath. Carolyn Bordeaux currently represents the 7th District, Lucy McBath the 6th. But when Republicans in the legislature redrew the maps after the last census, they squeezed as many Democrats as possible into the 7th, making the 6th, well, a lot more Republican. Instead of trying to win that barn red district, McBath chose to challenge Bordeaux for the safely blue seat next door. 
Laura Raymond, who's working the event's sign-in desk and is voting for Bordeaux, said Macbeth may have made the wrong call. It would have been useful, I think, for Lucy Macbeth to have, you know, gone after Democrats in that district. But, um, you know, she made her choice, and we just have to go with it. No matter who wins, Georgia's congressional delegation is very likely to have one less Democrat when the new session begins in 2023. Sam Greenglass, WABE News, Norcross. Parents who are also students could be eligible for help with child care expenses due to an expansion of a state program, as we hear from our education reporter, Martha Dalton. Georgia's Child and Parent Services, or CAPS program, subsidizes child care for low-income families. It's run by the state's Department of Early Care and Learning. Deputy Commissioner Elizabeth Casper says the CAPS program had 12 priority groups. People who meet what we call a very low-income level, people who are participating or receiving temporary assistance for needy families, children in foster care. Now, student parents are the 13th priority group, Casper says. Parents who are enrolled in any educational program could qualify. It's not, hey, you have to be pursuing a bachelor's degree, for example, to be in this group. You could be, but you also could be pursuing your GED or other adult education. Through federal funds, DECAL has been able to waive all child care costs for CAPS families through October. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And finally, Fulton County is opening two more COVID vaccine centers today as those COVID-19 infections increase across Georgia. Now, the sites are at the Neighborhood Union Health Center on Sunset Avenue in northwest Atlanta, and vaccinations will be available during business hours on Mondays and Tuesdays. A second location at the North Fulton Regional Health Center in Alpharetta will be open Monday through Friday. And get this, the county says they're giving out $100 gift cards at the two locations as an incentive for Fulton residents to get vaccinated. We can all use an extra hundred bucks. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. It's been more than two years now, right? You know what I'm talking about. COVID-19, the pandemic. And predicting how many people will be infected with the coronavirus, let alone how many deaths would occur, well, it was just too hard. But here's what we know now. Roughly way more than 521 million cases and more than 6.2 million deaths. And here in the United States, we're approaching 1 million deaths. What will future historians and history books reveal about how the world responded to this virus? Well, we won't know 
until then. But creating and implementing effective strategies regarding public health policy is definitely something that's not lost on Dr. David Ross. Whether domestic or global, for more than three decades, he's either led or been a part of programs to strengthen information capacity of public health systems in the U.S. and other nations. Well, Dr. David Ross is the outgoing head of the Task Force for Global Health and right here in Atlanta, and he joins me now. Dr. Ross, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me, Rose. Appreciate it. Before we get deep into our conversation, I, I do want to get your thoughts on yet uh, two more mass shootings in this nation, Buffalo, and then later at a California mm-hmm. church. And, and whether folks debate about it or not, but we do know gun violence is a major public health problem. Yeah, absolutely. Gun violence is a major health problem. Um, it's tragic and and unfortunately so woven into the fabric of the way this country seems to operate that uh, going without guns is, seems to be impossible. Uh, <clears throat> I can't say more than other people have said other than mm-hmm. it's hard to understand why any policymaker wants to accept that people need to have unbridled access to military-level weapons. Is there anything else that public health policy officials and folks, experts in your space, is there any more that you all can do? If it, if lawmakers aren't listening to you, so many of you all have testified in congressional hearings, you've been a part of reports, mm-hmm. but what more is there that can be done that maybe isn't? Or have we reached the, the end in terms of what public yeah. health officials can do? Uh, I, I think the reality uh, is that public health can assess problems, can collect data, can measure the scale of the problem, uh, but the uh, the response to those facts, to the data, mm-hmm. to the assessment, uh, the, the the management response does fall to policymakers and uh, public health authorities as you've seen with COVID, uh, mm-hmm. made recommendations and frequently political authorities overrode those recommendations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unfortunately, I think that's the, the tragedy with gun violence. We can assess, but we can't necessarily manage. Mm-hmm. And um, I think this is where every community in the country has got to come together and say, can we possibly, folks, find a way to make this a less violent society? Well, uh, I I find it it's tragic, and at the same time, uh, we have these extremists being fueled, and uh, you put the two together, and you get what happened in uh, this weekend in New York. Um, I I don't know. I wish I could be optimistic about this. My predecessor, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, actually has always specialized in gun violence. Mm-hmm. He's been on and, this program uh, talking about it. Yeah. Yeah, and Mark is uh, one who's tried to broker relationships with policymakers and, in fact, eventually did that with a former uh, conservative Republican from um, Arkansas. Uh, But still, just getting people to accept the fact that assessing the level of violence is itself okay to do. Right now, that has been a challenge. It was Mm. for almost a decade where uh, Congress just said to CDC, you can't even measure the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's a political culture problem. And we've got to dig deep in every community and start 
a dialogue to talk about what constitutes fair and reasonable in a complex society uh, that we live in. Yeah, and speaking of, of data and what we know, as you are well aware of, the United States is set to reach a, a, a milestone. It's a grim metric at that, but the one million lives lost to COVID-19. I want to take a listen to what Dr. Anthony Fauci recently said on PBS NewsHour last week. The idea of one million deaths in in an outbreak uh, that is historic in nature, we've had nothing like this in well over 104 years, one of the parts about it that adds to the tragedy is that many of those deaths were avoidable, avoidable if people had been vaccinated. It's estimated that if people had been vaccinated to a much greater extent right now, that vaccines would have avoided at least a quarter of those deaths, namely about 250,000. Dr. Ross, how much truth is in that statement from Dr. Fauci? Well, I think uh, Tony got it exactly right. Uh, if we had aggressively taken uh, on vaccines, I mean, if our if the public would have uh, vaccinated themselves to the maximum, there's no question we would have far fewer deaths. Uh, and I think the, the estimates that Dr. Fauci provided are probably quite reasonable and possibly even cautious. And let's let's also be clear: had the political response Mm-hmm. been one that universally said, look, we are in this together. This is a respiratory infectious disease. This disease uh, will spread regardless of your political uh, affiliations, regardless of where you live. Uh, so your political boundaries, your uh, city boundaries, etc., mean nothing. This is mm-hmm. just a virus. It spreads through breathing. It's going to get you eventually. If we would have, if political leaders would have said that, beginning with the former president, to all politicians say, look, we're in this together. We have to do the best we can. This will be serious. Uh, You'll remember when Dr. Uh, Messonnier, Nancy Messonnier, Mm -hmm. spoke out in February 2020 uh, and said, folks, this is going to be serious. It, It was not getting said you know, well enough, mm-hmm. uh, it was, you know, seen by her as being out of line. Uh, and yet all she was saying was the truth is that this could be very deadly and it has proven to be very deadly. And if people would continue, though, if they have not been vaccinated to please go get vaccinated, uh, if you have a vaccination and you're full. I mean, if you're fully vaccinated and fully boosted, like I am, mm-hmm. and you get a breakthrough case, which actually I got <laughs> a few days ago, mm-hmm. and am recovering from, it's like a mild cold. But uh, if you're not vaccinated, it could become much worse. And um, you mentioned that, and I wasn't going to mention it unless you mentioned it because I wanted to be respectful of of your personal health. Mm-hmm. But how are you doing, <laughs> Doctor Ross? <clears throat> yeah, I'm fine. Uh, just, uh, you know, chest congestion and sneezing, mm-hmm. uh, sore throat, but I'm getting over it and I'll be well in a couple of days. And thankfully, I'm fully vaccinated and fully boosted. So uh, it's, it, but it's the reality. And mm-hmm. we're going to have to live with this from now on. I, I suspect many of my colleagues would agree that 
uh, we will start to have annual COVID vaccinations the same way we have annual flu vaccinations. And let me get your thoughts on this because we're hearing, uh, we've been hearing this for about a month, maybe two months now, that it is likely the U.S. will see a surge, another surge of COVID-19 in the fall. Mm-hmm. That is something that you, that you, uh, you believe, yes, we're going yeah. to deal with this again. Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, well, we're on a bit of an uptick right now. Um, it's it's going to persist until we get the world largely vaccinated. Um, so we at the, the Task Force for Global Health, mm-hmm. one of our programs is our COVID vaccination program. Um, and we are, we agreed in partnership with the CDC to be responsible for having for helping over 50 countries mm-hmm. around the world uh, develop adult respiratory vaccine programs. So that's flu and COVID and having them be able to run an annual adult vaccination program, mm-hmm. which a lot of countries don't have. Well, yeah, I want to talk I about think- that because that, that was a criticism that a lot of folks had of some of obviously the, 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 the powerhouse nations, obviously, the U.S. and the Biden administration pledging uh, so many vac- you know, vaccines to these nations. And then there was all this mm-hmm. conversation about, well, you know, do they have the infrastructure to house the vaccines or their, you know, copyright and trademarks and, and all of that. But yeah. we're talking about trying to save people's lives. Uh, the response to this p- virus from a global standpoint, some nations can only do what they could do based on the infrastructure, the health infrastructure. Some nations had the infrastructure and were just slow, and there were some that were in between. So if, we're, if you're talking about, like so many health experts are talking about, okay, we got to get the rest of the world vaccinated. W- w- what are you seeing on this front? What are those barriers that still exist? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah, it's a fact that lower-income countries uh, did not, and still many do not have, uh established supply chains to acquire and receive the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, we have large parts of the world, like the African continent, uh, parts of Southeast Asia, uh, where they don't have more regional production capability. You have to understand, I mean, uh, vaccine production in many ways is not highly profitable. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way maybe making pharmaceutical drugs is more profitable. So uh, building vaccine production capability takes capital. And I think what COVID has helped to do is push the world forward to working to bring about more regional production capabilities, more locally owned, if you will, uh, production capabilities. But that's going to take some time Mm -hmm. to make that happen. In the interim, uh, what we are doing is, is typically of what's needed is to work with a country on their terms that some of them may have a need for legal and policy uh, work to be put in place to make adult vaccination programs workable. Some many need supply chain uh, assistance to build the supply chain, the acquisition of the vaccine, the management storage of the vaccine, etc. Uh, bringing the vaccine to sort of the distal end, to the end of the end of the road, if you will, uh, to help doing that. Um, And then learning how to manage a program, train all the people, so that it can be a routine program. So that's what we're helping uh, Mm -hmm. the world do. 
and it, it will take time. It's one thing to get vaccine shipped to the port of entry. It's another thing to get it out to where there are shots in the arms. So it's not just a given that you drop vaccine someplace, that it will end up vaccinating people. Um, it, it's been said many times that uh, it's not vaccine that matters, it's vaccination. Mm -hmm. So shots in arms is really what solves the problem. And we need to have that happen around the world so that the vast majority of the world becomes um, or their susceptibility to this infection is greatly reduced and that's going to eventually get us out of this. And this is an area where you all have worked in so many different aspects and for those who may not be familiar with you all because you actually started out as a task force for child survival you've been located here in the Atlanta area and I think now your headquarters are in downtown Decatur I don't want to get an email saying Rose is downtown Decatur not Atlanta because they will correct me which they would be right but the work that you all have been (laughs) doing the work that you all have been doing for so long You've been doing this for a long time. And for listeners not familiar, give them a, a sort of a brief synopsis, synopsis of what you all have been doing at the Task Force for Global Health. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, thanks. Uh, we have been at this for almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. The Task Force, uh, as it was first named, the Task Force for Child Survival, uh, was founded by Dr. Bill Fagey, a very famous man in Global Health, former director of CDC. Pardon me. Um, uh, it was founded simply, on, and the reason the name Task Force, uh, it was a temporary idea to act as the convening secretariat, authoritative experts that would bring the groups that needed to work together better to vaccinate the children of the world. A very compelling story, what Dr. Feggy did, is he helped the leaders of the world, the World Health Organization, mm-hmm. World Bank, uh, UNICEF, UNDP, major agencies, see that if they worked together better, they could do a better job. The consequence of not doing a better job when you have a vac- uh, the proper vaccines is that kids were getting sick and many were dying. Mm-hmm. And that's really inexcusable. It's just a matter of why didn't we get the vaccines to these kids who need them? So he got them together to solve that problem. And that became this task force, this convening organization. Mm-hmm. And it was intended to initially address uh, low vaccination rates in low-income countries. They did a spectacular job at, at raising rates from 20% to 80% within a decade, which then just led to more people asking Dr. Feige and the, the, the staff at the task force for help, mm. uh, which now leads us to where we are the, the hub for eliminating uh, a number of tropical diseases, mm-hmm. so-called neglected tropical diseases, uh, like river blindness, mm-hmm. and, uh, blinding trachoma and lymphatic psoriasis. Polio even is not a tropical disease, but a, a viral-borne disease, hepatitis C. These are all diseases we're involved in guiding the coalitions around the world to work together with many partners to bring their resources to bear, stay the course, and eventually eliminate these diseases. So that's one big piece of what we do. Mm -hmm. And then another part of this is bringing vaccines to the world, Mm. helping people get access to and use the vaccines that are available, and then inevitably as part of this, 
strengthening health systems. It's actually helping people help themselves. So those are the three big focus areas that we have. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Dr. David Ross. He's the outgoing president and CEO of Atlanta-based Task Force for Global Health. We should say heading into retirement mode, sort of, but we'll find out exactly what he's going to be doing. You know, you became president and CEO, I believe, I believe in 2016, although you have been with the organization for a number of years. Do you measure mm-hmm. successes based on Everything you just told me, is that a primary metric for you all? You, obviously, there you, you would want to get to a point where you could eradicate so many of these diseases and, and, and viruses that we know can be eradicated. But how do you measure, I guess, under your leadership, you know, or do you even worry about that? Have you done that? Well, I don't worry about my leadership so much. It's what our programs are achieving. Mm-hmm. So uh, we pride ourselves in uh, having Uh, programs that have very good monitoring and evaluation, very good measurement of our progress towards the real goal. So if we're eliminating diseases, we can tell you in every district of every country that we're working in in the world, the progress we're making, the progress that's been made in the last uh, quarter, uh, in in some cases, almost near real time. So it's uh, constant focus on achieving the the uh, the kind of end level impact that is our purpose in life that's why we exist uh so i measure you know in a way my involvement in this is that are our programs continuing to make the progress that we have promised our Mm -hmm. funders and the people of the world that we would make when you think about COVID-19, and obviously, again, you know, and I've said this so many times, it was not, well, at least to the folks I talked to, maybe you had it in your playbook in terms of how to deal with a pandemic. But how would you assess how this nation, and if you want to even take it, take, take it even further out globally, how the world responded to this virus? What lessons should mm-hmm. be learned if they didn't by now? Really good question. I I think everyone should accept that we have a national and uh, the U.S. national responsibility to at least protect ourselves. But when you come to things like respiratory viruses and a number of of infectious diseases, Mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge we are part of one globe. Mm -hmm. We are one planet. And uh, with the kind of, Tom Friedman called it, flat or small world uh, where we are all living close together. And the fact that you're no more than a 36-hour plane ride from almost any place in the world, we have to look at the world as the, the challenge. And that means we have to now protect prevent where possible and respond well. Mm -hmm. So did we do those things well in the case of COVID? Sort of. (laughs) I think there's obviously lots of room for improvement, and it means to me, uh, this may sound self-serving, but it means much more investment in surveillance all over the world. That allows us to detect when new things are emerging. Mm. So... Think about it. When you shrink the time from detection to response, 
you save lives and you save money. Yeah. <clears throat> the longer you let a problem fester, the worse it gets, the more people get sick, the more people die. There's a cost to that, not just in lives, but of course, economic costs also. What we as a, a country need to do is invest in prevention in a big way. CDC is a unique uh, and almost magical institution for the world. Mm -hmm. I used to work there. I used to give uh, tours uh, when I was in the office of the director to visitors and people from all over the world want to come to Atlanta to see the CDC. Mm -hmm. uh, and are so glad that the CDC exists. We need, as a, a country, the U.S. government needs to further strengthen CDC's uh, prevention and protection and response capabilities. So that means more investment in global surveillance for various diseases. Why well, I'm uh, curious. More, Go ahead. And more planning for, for how you actually respond. And uh, I wish we in the health public health sector were funded the level, say, the Defense Department is to do these kinds of functions. I think you would son you would have seen a better, more vigorous response. Well, I want to get your thoughts on that because there was some criticism of the CDC, and we should note that obviously they they changed leaders. They were under two different administrations throughout all of this, uh, and folks criticizing and and. Some folks say it was justified in terms of the mixed messaging to mask or not to mask. OK, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to have the mask. And then, of course, you know, there was a spike in, in infections. But is that a result of also, as you just talked about, maybe not having enough resources to then or, or to make the, the adequate assessments and and recommendations? Mm -hmm. Is that, a, is that a problem? Was that part of the problem? Is it, With more funding or more people, I don't know how many more people they could have had, would that would have presented yeah. some of those issues? Well, I think one of the things that needs to happen in another year or two is a really rigorous debrief of the entire COVID experience mm -hmm. by a, a panel of authoritative experts, many of whom would have been involved in some who've not been involved, but to really look deeply at every every part of the, the response to see what could be done better. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's after action reviews. The military make that a standard part of the way they work. And I think uh, the same is needed in public health. But in this case, I think you uh, I'll give you an example. What Think about this. Uh, a few years ago, a few years back, there was this movie, Contagion. Mm-hmm. That came out. And that was a movie where part of the challenge was that people were fighting to get themselves vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> they did not in that movie even conceive of the scenario that so many people would decide they didn't want to be vaccinated or they didn't believe this was a real infection. And as one who has been involved in some of those meetings in years past of preparedness discussions, I don't think any of us could have quite imagined a scenario that would have played out the way this one did, mm -hmm. that we would have uh, political leaders who would question the, the, the validity of scientific advice and, and factual data, that we would have 
uh, people who were incentivizing uh, the public at large to be skeptical and mm-hmm. actually not believe that there was a problem. Uh, and I don't think any of us could have imagined the insidious effects of social media. Well, yes, uh, but so, that's what you pointed to. When we opened this conversation talking about gun violence as a public health issue and, and how politics is woven into that, it's the same thing with this, where mm-hmm. politics and, and party affiliations and folks trying to get votes and, and trying to build their base, that overshadowed people's lives, which also goes back to that clip we played from Dr. Fauci in terms of perhaps we could have saved a quarter of a million lives here. So, right. so how do you get You're folks so right. to? How do you get folks to? If everyone's always talking about, if I hear this narrative one more time, I'm going to scream. It takes political will. Everyone says, "Rose, it takes political will to do this and do that." But how do you get folks to have the understanding that political will is about collaboration, particularly when it comes to saving lives? You've yep. been trying to do this for three plus decades now, well, Doctor Ross. One of our programs is called Voices for Vaccines. Um, Karen Ernst runs mm-hmm. that program, and it began as mothers talking to mothers. Mm-hmm. And I think that is how you eventually get to where you are building political will. It's a matter of person-to-person communication within one's family and circle of friends, fostering, knowing how to foster conversation, how to say, okay, that's what you believe. Would you be willing to look at this set of facts and we can tear them apart and just look at that would you be willing to even talk about that mm-hmm. we have to start to open doors in that way uh to say it's okay we can still love each other but can we talk about this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and allow the talk and the discussion to to begin because if we don't do that at a very uh, familial and and neighborly level we're never going to do it at a at a larger scale of you know state level kind of discussion where we have you know states like Georgia I and mean, many millions of people very complex different set of life experiences mm-hmm. between urban and rural mm-hmm. uh, and you know uh, white and black and all these dividing lines potential dividing lines but when you sit down with people in one another's homes you sit in somebody's backyard and talk like friends and be willing to open the discussion to say, well, could we talk about this? Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe you could explain better to me why you think I'm wrong. Opening up that discussion at that level can actually start to change people's mm-hmm. uh, way of thinking and minds and eventually allow them to look at what you and I might call facts, like the number of people who have actually died of this disease. That's factual. Uh, That's not made up data. That's not a guess. Mm -hmm. That's real. And to be able to say, well, do we really care about lives? Really? Um, Well, here we've lost a million. And we seem to be taking a rather carefree approach about it. Let me ask you, Dr. Ross, why now you are retiring? You're not not retiring, retiring from probably the advocacy for the work, but or are you? Are you are you yeah. done? Are well, you no? Yeah. <laughs> well, no. I just I, I as I told our staff, I'm closer to age 100 than I am to age 50. So uh, I think it's fair to give somebody else a chance <laughs> to, to lead. <coughs> um, 
and you know my my wife would certainly like to have more of my time for travel and that kind of thing yeah but no i'm not going to leave the playing field there's a lot to be done uh, there are a number of activities that i'm involved in that i want to continue to be involved in and um, I'll continue to be involved because public health is so important. I mean, it's, it gets in your blood. Mm-hmm. The ability to work in a job and work with people who together will actually change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. So that's really special when you get to be able to do that. Mm. I think that is a perfect way to end our conversation. Dr. David Ross, Outcoin President, CEO of Atlanta Base. Decatur, downtown Decatur base task force for global health, heading into retirement mode, sort of. Dr. Ross, thank you for all your decades of working in public health and policy and best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Rose. Thank you for what you do also. Take care now. Bye. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Now, most of the commencement ceremonies for our local colleges and universities have come and gone. Again, I had a great time at Clayton State University. Congratulations to all of the graduates out there. And every year, Closer Look profiles a few of these graduates from across our region. And we'd love to get, we'd love to profile all thousands of y'all, but we can't. So today, as we kick off our 2022 graduation series, we begin with Emory University. And before we get to our graduate, let's hear from film and television producer, director, and philanthropist Tyler Perry as he spoke at Emory's 177th commencement ceremony. Don't be afraid of hard work. Don't be afraid of the pressure that will come in order for you to see your dreams through. As you leave the safety of these hollow grounds, I want you to continue to look for professors. I can look at your face right now. You're going, Tyler, I don't want to see another professor as long as I live. But I assure you, professors will be with you all of your life. I'm 52 years old and I'm still meeting professors. And what that means is anyone who comes into your life, anyone who comes to teach you something, to bring value, something, sometimes these lessons are hard and painful, but yet they are there to make you stronger. So count those people as professors. Well, among Emory's graduates, Anna Voss, Anna majored in neuroscience and behavior biology and is one of five Emory senior graduates to win the National Science Foundation Graduate Fellowship. Anna, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for taking the time and congratulations. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin here. Who are those professors in your life? Because now is the time to thank everybody. And if they're listening, you better start with mama and daddy i'm assuming absolutely (laughs) absolutely no i 100 wouldn't be here without my parents and my little sister my little sister's graduating high school this year too so she's she i hope she's listening out there too (laughs) um but no my professors in my life have been like tyler perry was saying it's it's professors both at emory Uh, i started research at emory when i was 16 Mm -hmm. um, and i would not be where I am today without Dr. Mike Epstein, who I started research with at 16, and Dr. Stephen Sloan, he's who I currently work with and who I'll work with for the rest of the summer before I go up to Pennsylvania for my PhD. Um, he's by far, both of them have been extremely influential in 
developing who I am today. Um, but like Tyler Perry said, even outside of that, um, the people that I've met at Emory, whether they be upperclassmen or underclassmen mm -hmm. who they're constantly influencing me and I'm on the crew team at Emory and I always tell the underclassmen, they teach me things every day about <laughs> who I am as a person, about being a better rower, about all aspects of myself. And so I think every single person I've probably met at Emory has been a professor to me in some way or another. <laughs> now, does rowing take some of the stress off of the academics? See, I, I understand, like I could go play ball, Absolutely. You know, play, <laughs> play golf ball, but no, you go and row. Yeah, yeah, we, it's so nice. So we row at Stone Mountain. Um, it's like probably 20, 30 minutes with traffic mm -hmm. sometimes, but 20 minutes from campus. And we're the only people on the water. And one of my favorite things to do, we have early morning practice. It's the stereotypical crew. We'll get up at 5 a.m. sometimes and go out and row. Um, but we see the sunrise in the morning and it's just us on Stone Mountain Lake. And we get to see the sunrise out on the water. And then after that, we'll go to our classes and I'll go to lab. And it's a very great way to start the day. It's where I kind of can re regroup and kind of mm -hmm. gain some peace to start the day. Let's talk about this interest is now where it's going to be a career path in neuroscience and behavioral biology. Can you yeah. take me through it? What age did you realize, you know what, I'm going to go with neuroscience <laughs> and this whole area of behavioral biology. When did that start? Yeah, absolutely. So I started in neuroscience or my interest in neuroscience started when I was really young. Um, so I've had anxiety disorder since practically when I was born. Mm -hmm. I've had it for as long as I can remember. And in seventh grade, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Mm -hmm. And when I was diagnosed with that, I remember hearing that my case was severe and that I'd likely have it for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And that that was going to be one of my struggles for the rest of my life. And when I heard that, I just have this very strong recollection of thinking to myself, I don't want this to be the way it has to be for everyone. Mm -hmm. And it, it very nicely coincided. I was learning about genetics for the first time in seventh grade. I went to Peachtree Middle School in Dunwoody mm -hmm. and I was learning about genetics for the first time. And it was around the same time that I was diagnosed. And so that kind of perfectly coincided with this idea of okay, what about my genetics is different that's leading to this disorder? Because it's really frustrated me and I really want to know. And that that type of question has driven me up until this point. And I, I think that it'll continue to drive me throughout my career. And so when I was in high school, that's how I first got interested in research where I just had this question about OCD, about anxiety, of where this, these disorders were stemming from and kind of what was causing these disorders. And I still, that drives me today. And does it help, Anna, that... Or is it an asset for you? Because since you're someone who's very open about your own condition and then you're also working in this space, does that give you uh, some extra, I don't want to say incentive, but also you're able to, maybe you're able to say, you know what, let's talk about this. Let's go down this pathway because I can tell you it's important from my own personal standpoint. Does that help? Absolutely. I, I, it's interesting. I was not comfortable talking about it at all in high school. In mm -hmm. high school, I worked very hard to hide. I wanted to be quote unquote normal, look normal. Not nobody knew that I had OCD. If you had told my best friend in high school that I had OCD, she probably wouldn't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but when I started college, I realized how many people actually suffer from these conditions and how how impactful it can be to start openly talking about them, especially like you just mentioned in science um, at Emory, we have a program called Initiative for Max Maximizing Student Development. Mm -hmm. And that's a program that I joined my sophomore year and it's for underrepresented scientists and kind of just, it's a forum for people underrepresented, underrepresented in the sciences to really start openly discussing things like this, whether it be racial disparities, 
gender disparities kind of, or for me, mental health disparities. And mm -hmm. so a lot of times we had a long conversation my sophomore or junior year, I think about how can we be inclusive, especially in a way that's inclusive of neurodivergent people, because mm -hmm. those are, those people are often neglected to be talked about when, especially because it's a hidden illness. So mm -hmm. like I said, if I didn't tell you, you probably wouldn't know, <laughs> um, which can be very detrimental in some cases. And what you're talking about is, is so needed. I've had so many conversations where we talk about in terms of research and, and studies mm -hmm. and how important it is to have a diverse pool of not just only participants, but also those who are running these research studies and these clinical Absolutely. trials, because that only adds to the uh, possibility of, of some type of, of a treatment or, or effective outcome. I want to take a stab at sounding like I'm really smart because I'm going to ask you to explain your research, but I want the listeners to know that I'm yes. going to introduce this, so hang with me. Because you recently <laughs> published as the as the first author on new research into neurogenetics, which found a combination of five proteins responsible for the growth of astrocytes in the brain. How'd I do? Is that, is that good? You're great. Sounds now, great. Now, what, you what got did I through the long title. Right. Now, what did I just say? <laughs> Explain that. <laughs> Yeah, so we just submitted a paper last week. Um, it'll be my first first author paper that I'm really excited about. And so my lab, which like I said, I, I work with Dr. Stephen Sloan at Emory. Um, we're in the Department of Human Genetics. And so my lab started in the fall of 2018 and I joined shortly after. Um, and I actually started on a different project when I joined the lab, but during COVID I pivoted and started this new project. Um, and we study a cell type in the brain called astrocytes, like you said. And mm -hmm. basically they were previously thought of as, of, as just support cells in the brain. So basically cells that might support neurons and provide some structure to the brain and the neurons that are firing the action potentials in our brain. Mm -hmm. um, but what research has shown lately and what my lab is kind of continuing to show is that these cells actually do a lot more than just support these neurons. So they're, they can be really influential in neurodevelopmental disorders such as schizophrenia and autism. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what we're ultimately working towards. Um, but before we even get there, we don't know how they develop. So what my project is looking at is looking at, like you said, I'm looking at proteins. So mm -hmm. these kind of extrinsic signals that could be secreted by neurons and might bind back to astrocytes um, that might influence astrocyte development. So what signal, basically my question is what signals can we, can the brain produce that would drive astrocyte development? I know you were listening to some of the conversation I had with Dr. David Ross from the task, the global task, the task force for global health. But when you think about on the global scale and the work that you're doing, what are you seeing on the research? And do you hope to, or if you haven't already, because it sounds like you might have, on a global scale, working with other researchers from around the world in this area? And what are we seeing? Is there some something new on the horizon we should expect? So I think, I mean, collaboration and research is one of the main reasons that I absolutely love it. Um, when I was in high school, I worked um, on a worldwide consortium about 22Q deletion syndrome. And so I think, especially in the field of gliobiology and astrocytes are a type of glial cells. I think that that research realm, it's so kind of small and so specific. Since like I said, when we think of neuroscience, we typically think of neurons. Mm -hmm. um, and so the fact that I'm studying astrocytes in this kind of field of gliobiology it's a very tight-knit group, and so all of us are very well-connected, whether that be just on in the U.S. or worldwide. Um, so all these um, professors and all these researchers are very well-connected, and so I think moving forward, for example, somebody in my lab is working on bioengineering, um, and so we're really able through these collaborations to start developing new technologies, start combining what we know about astrocytes, for example, with COVID research, with Zika virus research. Um, so really start thinking about how can we look at the intersection of neuroscience and pharmacology or all these kind of other other 
hard-hitting fields in research. I want to switch for a moment before we uh, say goodbye because I have a listener that just sent me a message saying, Rose, I am so glad to hear this young woman talk about OCD um, being diagnosed <laughs> when she was 12. Um, so that's a statement from a listener. When you hear that, you know, what goes through your mind? It makes me very grateful that other people are willing to share their experiences and kind of share the gratitude towards someone else sharing their experience. Because like I said, it wasn't always the case. I'm very open about it now, but it definitely was not always the case that I was open about it. And so if I can, if I can help someone know that there is someone out there and there's somebody that cares about you and that you'll get through, I'm, I'm very grateful. And I hope that everyone knows that. And this is a question that, that every graduate gets as long as we've been doing this series. And I asked him, okay, so where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? <laughs> yes. <laughs> in five years, I'll likely still be getting my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm getting, I'm starting there this fall to get my PhD in neuroscience. Um, so I'm really excited about moving up to Philly. I've been in Atlanta for 10 years though. So it's going to be very sad to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, so in five years, that's a six year program usually. So I'll be there. And then in 10 years, I really want to be a professor. So I want to stay in academia, maybe even come back to Atlanta and be a professor and have my own lab. And like I said, really start to study these psychiatric disorders and understand some more about them. And you're from Marietta. And for a, a freshman that's entering or a young person who's graduated from high school and entering in whatever that next chapter is in their life, what do you want to say to them? If you Also, if you could say to the younger Anna back then, what would you say about this? Ooh this next phase after high school? (laughs) I'd say enjoy every moment of it. If there's one thing that I realized because of COVID, it's that it goes by way too quickly. (laughs) Um, I undergraduate was, was, I think it's true for a lot of people. I had, I had such a large growing experience and growth happening during undergraduate that I could not have imagined, especially starting research so early. I thought I had it all figured out. It was going to be great. (laughs) And everybody said, you might change course. And I pretty much stayed. I've always been interested in neuroscience, but my friends and I were just talking about the ways that we all thought that we've kind of matured and changed through the years. And so I think it's cliche, but living in the present is extremely important, especially in undergraduate. I think especially as I was entering, I was so, so excited to look for the future, look for the future, look at this next step, I'll apply to this scholarship. Um, But there was so much happening that I now look back on and it was just one of the best experiences of my life. And I I would have loved to live in the present some more. (laughs) And for your graduating class, whether it's Emory or any other ones for this year, you all doing this during the pandemic. Yep, yep. What was that like? How do you sum that up? It, like I said, it feels like a whirlwind. I think when we started senior year, so this last fall, a lot of my friends and I, I joked, I still felt like a sophomore. It got kind of cut off right at spring break my sophomore year, and we all kind of bolted home and went went back to my parents' house um, for about a year and a half. <laughs> um, and so it, it was very strange. I think none of us could have predicted. I remember thinking over the summer, oh yeah, we'll be back on campus in the fall of my junior year, because Emory was all virtual mm-hmm. um, this, not this last year, but the year before my junior year. And so it was it was just very strange, but it it really brought me closer together with my friends, my family that I was able to move back to campus with my roommates. And so it was a odd experience, but I still <laughs> I I was able to get so much further on my work in lab and I missed rowing, but I still got to talk to my friends. And so we got through it. It, you, it was definitely I think something I'll never forget. <laughs> are you gonna continue to row? I mean, they've got some places for you to row up in, in Pennsylvania, right? 
Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> UPenn is right next to the Schuylkill River. So I'm hoping to row in, in Philly, but we'll see. I, I think I want to stay with it. I think it might leave a big hole in my heart if I drop I, it. <laughs> I think you should. I think you should continue because let me tell you something. You have to disconnect, Anna, and take That's it right. from a take it from an old pro doing something <laughs> she's loved for the last almost three decades. You got to disconnect. You got to yeah. take time for yourself, whatever That's that right. is. From Emory University, recent graduate, Anna Voss majored in neuroscience and behavioral biology, one of five Emory graduating seniors to win the National Science Foundation Graduate Fellowship. We've been talking about her journey so far. Anna, congratulations once again. Best of luck to you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Ms. Scott. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Daniel Razel, Ashan Hudson, and Janine Etter. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. By the way, congratulations to Daniel. He finished eighth. What did you do this week? You ran, you ran up, you ran 41 flights of stairs at what building? 1180 Peachtree Building. He finished eighth. And your time was just under eight minutes. And I didn't think he could do it, folks, but he did it. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.